0: Good evening. What a very big, busy day in Brussels, a G7 meeting, a NATO meeting, a meeting of EU leaders at the European Council. And finally, finally, Joe Biden has made it across to Brussels, to NATO HQ, exactly one month after the war in Ukraine started. I thought he should have been here the first week, but the fact that he was here is still important, because I'm beginning to think that NATO is actually increasingly important. Now, Boris Johnson, of course, there on the scene, but somewhat shunned, it would appear, by other foreign leaders. Look at this clip, and he's sort of really on his own a little bit. And then he decides that the prime ministerial thing to do on the world stage is to put his hands in his pockets and loiter. Get your hands out of your pockets, Johnson. Unbelievable. Not a good look for the country, I would suggest. However, what is better for Boris Johnson? And I've often accused him of being very indecisive. But one thing he has acted very clearly on is the war in Ukraine. We've given more leadership in terms of sanctions, and in particular, in terms of providing military support, in terms of equipment and kit, certainly than the rest of Europe. You know, just this week, we've agreed to send a further 6,000 missiles to the Ukrainians, because they were saying they were running out of ammo. Compare and contrast that with our former partners in the European Union. The Germans decided they were going to send... Well, initially, of course, it was just 5,000 helmets. But the Germans decided they were going to see weapons, but thus far, the Ukrainians say, they've seen precious little of it. When it comes to us weaning ourselves off Russian oil and gas, Germany saying very clearly, if we move too quickly on reducing gas supply, it will cause a major European recession, perhaps even a depression. And I just wonder, not only with the photograph, the picture there of Boris Johnson being isolated and shunned, but in terms of our actions and the EU's actions, I'm asking myself, can we actually work with the European Union in terms of dealing with and putting maximum pressure on Vladimir Putin? And it seems to me that the answer to that is no. We couldn't work with them when we were members. We certainly can't work with them now that we are not members, and that is why we need NATO to be a strong, vibrant, grown-up and sensible organisation. I was, I must say, very disappointed to see that Ben Wallace, the Defence Secretary, in that hoax call, made it clear that he'd thought until very recently that Ukraine ought to be a NATO member. I'm disappointed by that, but I have to say, Boris Johnson has been very, very decisive. He's been described in a briefing from the Kremlin, as the most anti-Russian leader in the world. And actually, over the course of the last month, he truly has been. Whether you agree with that or not, the fact is he has been decisive. Our European neighbours are split down the middle and, frankly, don't know what to do. So you tell me, can we work with the European Union in the battle against Putin? Farage at GB News. Dot UK. Well, let's go now live to Brussels and join our political editor, Darren McCaffrey. Darren, a frenetic day of meetings, but of course Boris Johnson excluded from the last of those.
1: Yeah, indeed, three extraordinary meetings, uh, Nigel. Today we had the NATO meeting uh, this morning, as you said, which the Prime Minister was at. Then there was a G7 at lunchtime and tonight here in Brussels, EU leaders alongside President Biden and President Zelensky, who, of course, is dialing in from Kyiv, are meeting. Uh, Interestingly, the two uh, big topics, perhaps unsurprisingly, though, are on sanctions and on military aid. Now, there is lots and lots of agreement on much of this, but there are, as you've rightly pointed out, some divisions too. Uh, First of all, on sanctions, Britain announced today that it's going to implement uh, further sanctions on sixty five individuals linked with the putin uh, regime and in addition to that is also going to sanction uh, the wagner group now this is this kind of mercenary group rabble in some ways uh, that is often called putin's army that have been reasonably effective in different parts of the world but they are going to be sanctioned uh, too. but the big disagreement or the big discussion tonight here in brussels is about the EU when it comes to oil and gas and that's looking quite tricky because the United States and indeed the UK want the EU to go further in terms of trying to wean the European Union off oil and gas particularly gas many EU countries are very reliant on it Germany a bit reticent in all of that they are concerned that if the taps were essentially turned off industries would be shut down and jobs would be lost as you say recession in Europe But there is defiance from Germany, too, notably President Putin insisting that oil had to be paid for and gas in rubles in recent days. Germany making clear that is not going to happen. It has to be in euros or dollars, as has been uh, agreed. So that discussion is going to be had. Clearly Poland, for example, and the Baltic states want Germany to go much further. Uh, Whether they can do that, whether they can reach agreement tonight, uh, is yet to be seen, Nigel.
0: Yeah, I mean, the point I was making, Darren, was that actually Johnson has been very, very decisive on all of this and and has upped the amount of military aid that we're giving to Ukraine very significantly this week. Um, And it's very difficult to see how we can actually have a working relationship with the French, the Germans and the EU on this.
1: Well, it's interesting. I did put this to an EU... Commission spokesperson actually for the external affairs essentially the foreign office of the EU earlier on about uh, whether it mattered that Britain was outside the EU now they were insistent no perhaps again unsurprisingly uh, saying that Britain and the EU were essentially on the same page and we are seeing coordinated action I mean we will see further sanctions tonight from the United States and EU uh, in addition to what we've seen of course uh, from the UK Uh, in terms of military aid Britain has been at the forefront of this, and there is no doubt, uh, along again with many Eastern European uh, countries, uh, though there has been a marked shift in terms of at least Germans' forward approach uh, to all of this, uh, certainly in terms of rhetoric and money, but those weapons are yet to be supplied. And the EU has set aside 500 million euros to EU countries to procure weapons on behalf of Ukraine. It's clearly not happening quickly enough. I think the other just interesting thing as well, Nigel, tonight is this big discussion about the use of chemical and biological weapons, because that was brought up in both the press conference of Boris Johnson and uh, Joe Biden, both insisting there would be consequences for Vladimir Putin if he went down that route, given the war's clearly not going as well as the Russians had hoped. What those consequences are, we, we really don't know.
0: Well, we saw that in Syria, of course, didn't we, with Obama's red line, which came and went. Final thought, please, Darren, on this. Had the previous president been there today, Donald Trump, there would have been an almighty row, because he would have told the Germans, well, you know what, I told you so a few years ago in terms of increasing reliance on Russia for energy. But has Joe Biden, and I made the point, a month has gone by before he's come to Brussels, has Joe Biden stamped his authority on proceedings today?
1: I think in some regards he has, just through the sheer position of his office, you know, when the President of the United States turns up anywhere, irrespective of who it is, there is a stamp of authority. Uh, You're right, many of them wanted him to get engaged earlier to show uh, leadership. Many feel that that's been lacking from the United States in recent weeks. We are expecting him to go to Poland, even suggesting he might go to Ukraine. Uh, tomorrow his European tour is far from over I-, I think just to counter a little bit of your points and, and, and you and, and viewers will decide I-, I think you're right in terms of the pressure that of course uh, President Trump was putting on countries like Germany to up their NATO spending uh, and that pressure did come to bear on certain countries at the same time there was always concern of course about President Trump and the US's membership of NATO and for many European countries they feel at least certain with President Biden that that whole heart of support of NATO is there
0: Well, we didn't see much of it in Afghanistan when they withdrew unilaterally, but I get the point you're making from Brussels tonight. Darren, thank you, as ever, for joining us and giving us that excellent commentary. I wonder, I wonder, I wonder. There there are many voices, you know, in Brussels saying, this proves the need for coordinated European defence. They're even going to push a referendum on the Danes on the 1st of June to suggest that they join the European Defence Union. Well... I'm not so sure that's a great idea. I'm joined right now by Colonel Richard Kemp. Um, and, and Richard, uh, a friend of the show, former British Army commander, uh, and, of course, a man that's been around COBRA, big security briefings. Richard, can we work together effectively with the Europeans on the military side of things, or is it better to say this whole thing's a fantasy and to make sure NATO's the right route for doing things?
2: There's, there's no doubt that NATO is the way we should be dealing with this situation, and NATO is coming much more into its own than it's been for a long time now oh. in response to this. I think the, the EU has been, uh, yeah, of course, they've done a few quite good things uh, in relation to uh, to Russia, including sanctions, etc. But they've also tried to use this crisis to, in a very cynical way, I think, to to try and set up this European Defence Union, which people like Macron have been pushing for for a long time. And unfortunately, they're trying to absorb Britain into that as well. My view is that the EU should keep out of the military sphere, should work through NATO, and certainly there's no way that Britain should even contemplate taking part in the EU Defence Union.
0: And yet, Richard, you know, as well as I do, that there are some senior figures in the British military who think we should be a part of this.
2: I've no doubt there are. And I know for for a fact that there are many senior figures in the civil service uh, who wish us to be part of it, those people who opposed and and still oppose our leaving the EU. And I'm afraid to say that Liz Truss, the Foreign Secretary, and no doubt the Defence Secretary as well, are being badly advised by many of those civil servants and uh, having, you know, uh, briefing them that they should be going more into uh, the, you know, cooperating with the EU on defence. Uh, and we've we've seen you know we've seen comments by Liz Truss, for example, alluding to the fact that she might consider it. And I think that's, it's a fundamental mistake because what it does it it drags us into a never-ending bureaucracy and undermines NATO. It takes away what NATO is trying to do, and it's all about it's all about just the EU aggrandizing itself. It wants to be a superpower. Yeah. It knows that having a a defence force is necessary to be a superpower, and that's what it's all about. It's been working on this for years and has seized this opportunity now to try and push it forward.
0: That's exactly what they're doing. Um, and, of course, this was the European army denied by Nick Clegg so many times, but, hey, uh, we, knew, we knew the truth of their ambitions. Just quickly back to NATO. You know, Biden did NATO enormous damage last year, that withdrawal from Afghanistan without reference, without consultation with his partners... Is he putting NATO back together again?
2: I don't think Biden is doing anything. I mean, we saw his statement, uh, his comments today. And, uh, yeah, I agree with you when you said earlier that he should be here in Europe and he should have been yeah. here before. But he also made a number of gaffes, one of which I, I detected, which was uh, he when he was asked about NATO's response to chemical weapons. He said, we will trade like for like, which, of course, we won't do. <laughs> and it, it's very misleading. I'm sure it was a mistake on his part. But, uh, you know, we can't afford to have that sort of mistake from the leader of the free world. So I don't think anything he can do will really put NATO together again. I think NATO is doing that, you know, the, the other no the U.S. government, but also countries like Britain in particular, which has taken, I think, the, the strongest lead of any country in the yes. world in confronting Russia. So I think that it, it, you know, NATO. NATO is coming together, but it's not. It's probably in spite of Biden rather than thanks to Biden.
0: Yeah, you're right about his gaffes. Of course, early on, even before the invasion began, he said, "Well, if it's just a minor incursion, that may be okay." And a final thought on Boris Johnson: Is this a moment where he's shown decisive leadership?
2: I think he has. I think there's no question about that, and I think that's illustrated by Putin today saying that uh, Britain is. Or, or Johnson himself, is public enemy number one for Russia. That I would take as a, a real badge of honour, in the same way as you know, Adolf Hitler hated Winston Churchill. I'm not say, saying that Johnson is Churchill, but I think in this moment he really has stepped up and, and has led the, the reaction to Ukraine, re- led the world reaction, as well as Britain's very strong and effective reaction.
0: Colonel Richard Kemp, thank you again for joining us on this Programme. And you see, we are fair and even-minded. Some say I'm too critical of Boris Johnson the whole time. Here I'm saying he has given on this issue decisive leadership. We try to be as objective as we possibly can. So the boss, the UK boss of PO, the chief executive officer, appeared today before a House of Commons committee. And it was a pretty bruising encounter. Back with that in a couple of moments. Can we work together with the indecisive European Union in terms of our battle against Vladimir Putin? I very much doubt it. I asked you for your views, and one says, allow me to rephrase it for you, Nigel, can the EU work with the UK to stop Putin after their childish and spite-filled post-Brexit sulking? Another says, definitely not. Good riddance to the EU, and we should keep our nose out of the spat between Russia and the Ukraine. It's nothing to do with Britain or British people interesting but yet public opinion at this moment in time is pretty overwhelmingly behind the British response. One viewer on Twitter says, I'll save everyone the trouble. The answer is no. Jeff says, I wouldn't trust the French or Germans as far as I could throw them. At the end of the day, they will do what is in their best interests. And finally, Ed says, frankly speaking, Germany got us into this mess with their crass, short-sighted energy policy here, here. And they were warned. By the previous president, but of course, they, nobody would ever listen to him. Now, the PO disgrace reached the House of Commons today. Peter Hebblethwaite, who's the CEO of PO Ferries, appeared today before a parliamentary committee. And goodness gracious me, did he have a rough ride from members of parliament?
2: Absolutely no doubt that we were required to consult with the unions. We chose not to do that because we believe. We chose to break the law. Because we chose not to consult, and we will come, and we are, and will compensate everybody in full for that. I recognise that this is a really. When you
1: get in your car and drive on the motorway, and you see the 70 mile an hour sign, do you say that that's not going to apply to me? I'm going to do 90
0: uh, because I think it's important that I do that. Is that how you go about your life? No. No, it isn't. Well, that was Andy Macdonald, Labour MP, having an absolute field day uh, at the expense of the PO boss. bus. I'm not quite sure the analogy of driving over 70 was a very good one, as I think quite a lot of people do. Uh, surprising in some ways that Hebblethwaite agreed to appear. He had no legal obligation to do so. He took a heck of a lot of stick. Uh, and it's perfectly clear that under UK employment law, he should have consulted with the unions. He didn't, and it's done. Uh, but the idea... The idea that in Brexit Britain, British workers should be undercut in this way by foreign workers is a disgrace. This happened to Irish ferry companies back in 2005, where Irish workers were sacked and replaced by cheap foreign labour. Uh, And we need to do something to honour the pledge to the British people through the Brexit vote that this cannot go on. Now, yesterday, of course, we had the spring statement from Rishi Sunak and I was reflecting on it today trying to find a word that summed up how I felt about it and it is sophistry. Yes, sophistry. The Oxford English Dictionary tells us the use of clever but false arguments especially with the intention of deceiving. Now you think I'm being a bit tough perhaps but it is sophistry. This is the tax plan. This is the PR spin put out by HM Treasury and it says my vision for a lower tax economy. Well, let me tell you, the minor cuts in tax that we were offered yesterday only make up about 20% of the tax rises that are in the pipeline, both at a company and a personal level over the course of the next couple of years. Yes, this is a Chancellor telling you that he believes in low taxes, that he's cutting taxes when he's actually putting them up. And that's why sophistry was the only possible word I could think to describe it. Now, the What the Farage moment happened after. It happened after the spring statement had been delivered. This photograph appeared of Rishi Sunak in a South London petrol station. And there he is, filling up a small four-door family car, as if he drives one of those. No, he'd borrowed it from one of the workers at the local Sainsbury's. He also was filling his car up before 6pm, and the 5p cut in duty didn't kick in until 6pm. He then seemed to have tremendous trouble with his credit card not understanding how to tap it on the machine to pay, I guess that's because he doesn't normally go out and buy petrol or perhaps anything else. Obviously, a PR stunt, uh, and 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 done and done just as Liz Truss does, done to try and impress everybody, but actually making himself look. I thought pretty blooming stupid. However, there was a worker at Sainsbury's yesterday who got thirty pounds worth of unleaded petrol put into his car, and the Chancellor paid. The bill. So at least somebody in the country came out of yesterday's spring statement slightly better off. Perhaps more concerningly for Rishi Sunak was an interview that he gave today on Sky News on The Breakfast Show. And let's have a look, let's have a listen to how this interview went.
2: It's been reported uh, that, that you've got family links to Russia, that your wife apparently has a stake in the Indian IT consultancy firm. In um, they operate in Moscow. They have an office there. They have a delivery office there. They've got a connection to the Alpha Bank in Moscow. Are, are you giving advice to others that you're you're not following in your own home?
1: That's not. As a, I, I'm an elected politician, and I'm here to talk to you about what I'm responsible for. Uh, my wife is not.
2: She is not. But but equally, if you, if you you know, as as a country, we are asking taxpayers to fund the UK's support for Ukraine. We're asking people in the UK to give their homes up to Ukrainian refugees, whereas it appears your family potentially could be benefiting from Putin's regime.
1: No, I I really... I don't think that's the case. And as I said, uh, the the operations of all companies are up to them. Uh, We've we've put in place significant sanctions and all the companies that we are responsible for are following those, as they rightly should, sending a very strong message uh, to Putin's aggression.
2: Do you know if Infosys is...?
1: I have have absolutely no idea because I have nothing to do with that
0: company. So there's the Chancellor of the Exchequer who wants you to believe that he's never heard of this company, that he, frankly, has no idea that his wife is a significant investor in a company that has a very active Moscow office and does not appear to have changed their business activities since the Ukrainian invasion one little bit despite this being a government talking tough on sanctions. And he wants us to believe he hasn't discussed this with his wife at all. He's got no idea about the relationship whatsoever. Well, do you believe that at home? I don't. I can't. It doesn't seem credible. It doesn't seem possible. And whilst we're busy slapping sanctions, we hear today on a further 65 people who've got it said Links in some way with the Russian government. I think we need to ask a few more questions about what Mrs. Sunak's involvement with this company really is. After all, surely this is a government that believes in openness and transparency above everything else. It was one of those moments, you know, when a very senior politician appears to get caught out by something that he or she had not expected to come. Uh, he looked acutely embarrassed. And as I say, his answers, frankly, weren't believable. When it comes to preparing a script beforehand, he's very, very good at the art of sophistry. And it's funny, isn't it? The snakes and ladders game of popularity of politics. A year ago, as he was dishing out the billions to all sorts of people, including, we learned from Lord Agnew, many, many fraudsters too, he was seen to be the most popular guy in the country, the guy that undoubtedly would become the next Prime Minister after Boris Johnson. I think after yesterday, and in particular, those questions that were asked this morning by Sky, um, I think that that is now open to doubt. Now, the real Watte-Farage moment, and I can hardly believe this, it concerns Tulse Hill. Yes, Tulse Hill in South London, in the borough of Lambeth. Uh, Now, I know Tulse Hill pretty well, because I was at school a mile and a bit down the road. I might have even visited the odd Tulse Hill establishment in my teens. So I know Tulse Hill, but I didn't know, I genuinely didn't know, that the name of Tulse Hill had come from Sir Henry Tulse, who was from that area. The family were landowners, when of course it would have been fairly rural, because we're going back to the 17th century. He went on to become the Lord Mayor of London. Sir Henry Tulse was a very, very wealthy man and benefactor. Uh, But it turns out that much of his wealth, at least we're told much of his wealth, was derived from, you've guessed it, the slave trade. And so now Lambeth Council are considering removing, cancelling Tulse Hill from the map of South London, along with a very long list of road names, which they can trace back, to the empire they can trace back to colonialism. So GB News went out and about this morning in Tulse Hill in the borough of Lambeth to ask local residents what they thought.
1: I think that's probably a good thing actually. I lived in Bristol for quite a few years and that came up quite a lot and obviously has done more recently in the news. Um and I don't think it's worth preserving the history of something like that when it's so awful and negative and they should yeah change it it looks something more modern perhaps maybe something explaining about the area's um, name its heritage its history and explaining it that way because if you change the name we lose the opportunity to actually tell the history of the area
2: I uh, would agree that uh, the name change would be okay um, the historical links to slavery are an issue and I don't think the name is as important enough as um, to, to hold on to it uh, when there are uh, better alternatives that could be, could be suggested it's a bad uh, idea because if you didn't tell me it was related to slavery i wouldn't know so leave it as it is don't go and turn everywhere upside down leave it as it is
0: (laughs) i did enjoy that last response i really did so a mixture of opinions there Uh, but of course we also had prince william in Jamaica yesterday expressing profound sorrow for slavery. Now look, nobody, nobody is pretending that the way people lived two or three hundred years ago, that the social mores that they adopted, that the way they behaved around the rest of the world are things that we approve of, but they are things that happened. We probably wouldn't think bringing back public execution was a very popular idea either. But you can't change history but the worst thing here is it's being painted out to be uniquely, slavery uniquely, something that white people did to black people. And in this country, from the Archbishop of Canterbury downwards, you would think we were the only country in the history of the world that had ever engaged in the slave trade. And I just think this argument needs a little bit more balance. Have you heard of the Barbary pirates. No, of course you haven't. Of course you haven't. You won't be taught this at school or anywhere else. But these were slave traders that came from the North African countries, countries like Algeria, Libya, as we know them today. And between 1500 and 1800, which incidentally is exactly the same time period that people like Sir Henry Tulse made money out of slavery. During that period of time, they were from Sicily all the way up to Cornwall, Wales, the west coast of Ireland, taking slaves. Taking white European slaves. And a recent study, very interesting recent study, from the University of Ohio is suggesting as as many as 1.25 million people were taken against their will and put into slavery in North Africa. We need, please to get some sense of balance into this debate. We don't approve of what was done in the past, but we don't believe, at least I don't believe, in erasing history. I also think we should be rather proud of being the first country in the free world to abolish slavery and then to use the Royal Navy, at much loss of life, to wipe out the slave trade. When it comes to comparisons on slavery between us and other countries, we were the first to get rid of it, And we did a lot to actually enforce it being removed from other countries too. Please, a sense of balance. More reaction to Boris Johnson there with his hands in his pockets, looking friendless in Brussels. And the question of can we actually work together with the European Union against Putin's interests? Dawn says, yes, if we want to stop Putin. Well... Yes, we, we'd like to. I think Boris Johnson would like to, but can we? Alex says, as you say, the EU are split, the UK are doing a good enough job on their own helping Ukraine. Well, certainly in terms of the number of missiles we're giving them, we are. If you believe that's the right cause. Anthony says, work with the EU, we lead by example. We'd still be faffing about if it were left to them. Yes, we would be in a hell of a pickle over this if we were still in. Muriel says, the EU members ignoring Boris Johnson is utterly childish and pathetic and shows clearly what they're like. How can the UK work with them? And finally, Donny says, we should not be leading the charge. Partner by all means. Where are all the other major European countries? They're split, they're divided, and the Germans are hooked on Russian gas and oil, and that is the truth of it. Now, in a moment, the GB News Tavern will open. Our Talking point session will begin. I'll be joined by somebody who was a senior advisor at the last election to Donald J. Trump. I'll be joined by Jason Miller. Time for Talking Pints here in the GB News Tavern, and I'm joined by an American friend of mine, Jason Miller. Jason, welcome to Talking Pints. Cheers. Good Thank morning. you for being here. Now, I bet there are people at home who think, gosh, my boss is really difficult. <laughs> my boss has moods. My boss tells me what he thinks or she thinks. And you worked a senior advisor to Donald Trump.
3: That's no easy job, is it? No, I, I usually liken it to being on a roller coaster with no seatbelt, <laughs> and it, you just never know if you're, you're going up, you're going down, and sometimes you would have both multiple times in the same day. And it was uh, just to let people know every day I'd have to call them at six thirty in the morning. Yep, and we'd go through the first half hours of Fox News, CNN, MSNBC, Washington Post, New York Post, Wall Street Journal, USA Today, New York Times. And he would have read it all. He would have read it all. Would he really? So he wasn't, rely- he wasn't relying on you to read it all? No. So this is the thing, is that he would ask me questions such as, what's, what are they talking about in the papers today? And then it was very clear after about a minute that he knew everything that was going on. What he wanted was my take on what was big, what his base was going to be concerned about. The way he consumes news, and so how do you keep up with that? I would have to wake up at 5, 5.30 in the morning, just to read, just to prepare to call him at 6.30 in the morning. Uh, but it was, that was just the beginning of the day. Or sometimes you knew when the little uh, ding would go off from Twitter. Uh-oh, he's awake and he's tweeting. <laughs> and sometimes my, my wife would just say... And your heart started a race. My wife would just roll over and just say, you're going to have a tough day. <laughs> it's 5am and he starts tweeting. Uh, buckle up. Jason, you, you're a lifelong
0: Republican. And yet, growing up in a part of America, Seattle, that well,
3: these days is certainly pretty anti-Republican. Were well, you always a bit of a minority when you were growing up? Uh, a bit. So my father was a welder, and so he was very working class and very much yeah. had a fiscal conservative point of view, more social libertarian. Uh, my mom was very much a social conservative, but fiscal... <laughs> liberal, and there's not enough money that she could give away since it's other people's money. And somehow I got the conservative parts from both of my parents. Yeah. Uh, but growing up, I always had the attitude of being the, the street fighter, being the anti-establishment, of uh, fighting for the, the working class. That's where I came from. That was my background. Yeah. And so I've always taken on the anti-establishment fights in politics or even now in social media or anything that I'm doing. So I think that really framed me for how I wanted to approach life.
0: Because, you know, if you want to champion, you know, the blue collar, the working class background... In America, you know, for much of your of your early life, the Republican Party actually was a country club Republican Party. Uh, we had a you know a Bush family. We had Romney, um, a party of well, a party that didn't really appeal very much to working people. I mean, it must be quite difficult to be a Republican through that period of time.
3: Well, definitely. And one of the things that my dad would tell me is he said that, I want you to go off to college. I want you to learn some different things uh, because I don't want you to have to wake up at 4.35 in the morning and go weld all day long. And, and obviously he ended up getting emphysema from his job, yeah. ended up having to retire a bit early. But So I saw that struggle. What it's like to literally have to get up every single day and grind and work hard. And that's, Nigel, where I think you were such a critical leader as we talk about the Brexit movement, of realizing here's actually where the moral compass is of our people—not just in the UK, but in the US—we've seen this this populist rise up all around the world of where the elites have completely forgotten about mm. people who actually go and mm. work for a living. So uh, that's why I think you have such a critical role in history, and I think well, they felt yes, they felt taken for granted, they felt
0: ignored, they felt they weren't being listened to, and I, I think you know the the 2016 uh, Brexit phenomenon and the Trump phenomenon were really. Uh, just different sides of the same coin. It was it was it was a very aligned movement um, in in terms of you know repositioning lifelong Labour voters voting Brexit, lifelong Democrats in the end then voting Trump. So you had those views, and and as I say, it wouldn't always have been easy, but you finish up working for a larger than life Texan politician, and he's been on this show a couple of times, and and in fact he was on a couple of weeks ago, Ted Cruz. Now Ted, you know, a lawyer. Very, very bright. Um, No doubt about that. And, of course, he ran, didn't he, to be the presidential candidate in 2016. And there you are, Jason Miller. You're advising Ted Cruz, and you're advising Ted Cruz
3: how to put out anti-Trump adverts. So what a lot of people don't realize (laughs) is that when President Trump was talking about running in 2012, I was going to be his campaign manager. Okay, way back then. Way back all the way. So it was actually in 2011. So what was it about Trump... or or what was it about you that Trump saw? Because uh, I think we both came with the perspective of being enough of outsiders to where we realized that no one in the system could actually go and change it. We needed something completely different to try to get a reset in Washington. And so I spoke with President Trump, we kind of did the whole dance, we had everything from salary and start date and all those things put together, and then he didn't run. And then after, shortly after that, he redid his apprentice contract. So I yeah. admittedly, I kind of thought the whole experience was really about juicing the apprentice renegotiation. So then fast forward to 2016, people talked, you know, might Trump run, might naughty? Mm. Uh I just assumed that, no, he's not going to. But you're signed up with Cruz at this so time. I signed up, signed up with Cruz because yes. I just thought that Trump wasn't going to run. Yep. So I worked with Cruz, and even when President Trump jumped in, I didn't know where he would go, but the first time, he had 20,000 people show up to a rally, I'm like, this guy has 20,000 people, and he, he's not even singing or playing guitar, we're in trouble. So I, I knew that's when we were... But no, I, I went at President Trump, uh, pretty tough in the tell me about your. Tell me about your interview with Trump. It's fascinating. The interview with Trump was it was truly fascinating. So I walk in, and we sit down, and everyone's in there. He had Jared, you had Ivanka, Stephen Miller, Hope Hicks, uh, all the uh, kind of the... The, the worst, inner like, circle. The yeah. inner circle that you yeah. see. There's only one chair in front of him. He goes, Jason, I want you to sit right here. So we sit down, he looks at me, he goes, You worked with Ted Cruz in the primary. Uh, I beat him, so he reminded me, of course, that he won. He goes, (laughs) He does that. (laughs) He does that. He goes, Tell me something negative about Ted Cruz. Oh, this is an interesting job question. I go, not going to do it. I go, that's just not how I operate. If I've worked for someone, then I I don't badmouth them publicly. And he goes, no, he's like, "Uh, you know, I need to know you're on my team. Tell me something bad about him. Otherwise, I'm going to think that you're still with him. Maybe you're some kind of spy. And, you know, I'm not going to do that, sir. Came back a third time. And he says, and I I can't use the words on, I don't think I can on British TV. But he said, quit, you know, such and such around. And he goes, tell me something negative about Ted Cruz or you need to get out of here. There are 20 people in the room. They're all standing behind me. And so I looked at him, and I just rolled the dice and said, Mr. Trump, I'm here to make you the next president of the United States, not to beat up on a former boss. And he busts out laughing. He goes, good, you passed the test. Uh, Jared told him to start on Monday. (laughs) My armpits were drenched. I thought it was finished. I thought the trap door was going to be like in one of the James Bond movies. I just dropped down in Trump Tower. But I passed the test. But that was the interview. And I guess he was looking, looking for, are you a loyal person? Yeah, he wanted to know that if we're going to go into battle together, if I'm going to be the guy who's calling him at 6.30 in the morning, that I'd be someone who you could trust was going to go into that. And that's why I think in politics we lose a lot. Uh, That's too much of that is gone now. I think people try to go and make the quick buck or things of that nature. Yeah. And and if you're going to go into the foxhole, if you're going to uh, take that, that confidence on from someone, you have to return the respect.
0: Now, you nearly got the big press spokesman job, but things a few personal problems crept up and they do in people's lives. Um... And he goes into uh, the White House, and it doesn't take long, does it, Uh, before there's the Mueller inquiry, Uh, before we get Russia, Russia, Russia. It never, ever ends. Um, I had it here. I'm still getting it, by the way. I'm still getting it. I was was accused last week by a Labour MP using parliamentary privilege of earning an extraordinary sum of money in 2018 from the Russians. It's completely untrue. So we saw this on both sides of the pond. But a bit of sort of breaking story that's come out today that I've just got, which I know you're on top of, which is Donald Trump on Thursday, that's today, guys, sued Hillary Clinton and several other Democrats, alleging they tried to rig the 2016 presidential election by tying his campaign to Russia. So he's talking here about the 2016 campaign, but it didn't stop there, did it? It kept on going and going and going. Now, he's just won a court case, hasn't he, this week?
3: Uh, Yes, so Stormy Daniels actually is gonna have to pay him $300,000. So, of course, he put out this statement saying, of course I'd I'd beat Stormy Daniels, where's my, my 300 grand? But if you go to the Hillary thing, Here's why it was so critical, because Mm. a lot of people might not realize this. The first two years, maybe in the first two and a half years of the Trump presidency was all about Russia. It was CNN around the clock, MSNBC around the clock, Washington Post, New York Times. All they would do (laughs) was talk Russia. And the reporters all behind the scenes would say, you know that you're finished. You're the president. You'll never work again, I guess. Exactly. You'll never, you're going to be tied into this Russia. And what we found found out, we knew it was all fake. It was all made up. And in fact, one of the crooked Hillary's, I could still call her crooked Hillary. Uh, when a crooked, uh, crooked Hillary's lawyers actually went and pushed information to the FBI, knowing that it was false, and so uh, President Trump ran up 24 million in legal bills from fighting the whole Mueller effort, and so he's suing for three times that. Uh, I don't know. I'm not a lawyer, so I don't know what the no, success sure, uh, sure. possibility will be. But I'm sure. glad that he's he's taking the fight there because literally to waste two and a half years of an American presidency, it's quite amazing what he's able to accomplish even facing those headlines. Yeah, I mean, look, you know, I'm a Trump fan,
0: and the viewers know that, um, and his style on this side of the pond is is difficult for a lot of people. It's difficult in parts of America, too. (laughs) Uh, He's a New Yorker. I mean, that's kind of what they like. but, But so 2020, we get another election, and this time it's Ukraine that dominates everything. In fact, the last half of the presidency is dominated not by Russia but by Ukraine, and it's all to do with the Biden family, it's all to do with Hunter Biden, it's all to do with a very highly paid contract with a firm called Burisma, an oil and gas company, paying him $83,000 a month, I think it was, um, and he gets impeached for trying to sort of dig behind and find out the truth, at least that's what I think, the impeachment uh, impeachments were over. Um, in that election campaign... Hunter Biden's laptop appears with all sorts of compromising evidence, not just about his involvement with those companies, but about his father's effective endorsement. And it gets raised on a few TV debates. Uh, We're told it's inappropriate for for it to be discussed. I think Chris Wallace in the first debate wouldn't have it discussed. But just this week, the New York Times have admitted, haven't they, that the contents of Hunter Biden's laptop were true.
3: So Nigel it's even more scandalous than you would say so it's a couple of weeks before the election and this laptop that Hunter had left behind at a computer store in one of his yeah. uh rages I guess or you know whatever phase he may have been in life at the moment but it had all of the details for the business dealings not just Ukraine but China and in there specifically said that he had to set aside 10% for the big guy now if you're Hunter Biden you're the son of the former vice president of the United States okay the big guy is not uh you know is not uh, uh, you know, Jim Biden or, you know, some other Biden in the family. It's Joe Biden. That's exactly who it's about. So the fact that they even in some of these details went into Hunter was talking about funding other people in the family going to college because his dad didn't have the money to do it. And so is, is effectively picking up some of the household bills. Pretty scandalous stuff. What are the two big countries we're talking about right now? Ukraine Mm. and China, because right now with Russia and Ukraine, the next one is China and Taiwan. You know about the CCP aggression and what's going to happen next. The American public had a right to know about that. Big tech and big media colluded to say, nope, it was Russian disinformation. You can't share it. They got the New York Post had their Twitter account shut down, their Facebook account shut down, their YouTube account shut down. It was effectively... Blacklisted from being discussed. Adam Schiff, who uh, who is again part of the, he's one of the Democrat rabble rousers yeah. on Capitol Hill, yeah. he would take to the TV airwaves and say, This is the Russians again doing it in 2020, where they did in 2016, mm. and the media in the US and big tech went along with it. And yet, with that, with
0: the mass mail out of ballots, which America had never seen before, I did try and warn everybody that we'd seen how POSTAL voting can be abused here. But you're not gonna win the next election, Jason Miller by moaning about the last election or the election before. Even if he's successful in suing Clinton, it doesn't help you win the next election. It's, I, I just feel uh, that Trump is backtrading too much at the moment and not looking ahead to a reforming agenda. I mean, he is going to run again,
3: isn't he? I'm pretty convinced. I was with him on Monday, uh, this week in Palm Beach, he didn't use the magical words, but if I was a gambling person, then I'd gamble all my money on President Trump running, uh, at least as of this moment. Yes. Uh, but no, but I agree with you. I think right now, especially with the polling showing head to head, Trump versus Biden at this moment, Trump's ahead by several points. Mm. Talk about twenty twenty four. Talk about where we're going to go, how we're going to get things back to. That's, that, that's how I feel. Gas was only yeah. two dollars a gallon, not seven a gallon. So I've sure shared that with the president as well. I, I completely agree with you. Do you like him? I do. He's a he's a, a a good ally. I think he's, a, uh, he's very fair with his staff. He's someone who really cares about the people who work with him. Uh, the other thing too is you know exactly where he stands at all times because he'll tell you. And what's it like having a real rollicking from Trump? So, give me one quick thing. Once, uh, well, I've, I've gotten chewed out for a couple of things as part of my, <laughs> my personal issues, uh, which I uh, got resolved. But uh, no, and he, he uh, look, he, he does not pull his punches. Uh, but I went in once to take him a. It was a memo. It was like a, a kind of an inside baseball political thing about here's how we're going to talk about your tax plan. He looks at the memo, looks. At me, looks at the memo. How much time did you spend on this? I'm like, ah, oh, you know, like 15 minutes, sir. And he's like, no, you spent days on this, didn't you? No, no, no. And he goes, why, would, why didn't you come talk to me first? Here's what we're gonna do. I'm gonna call the Today Show. I'll be in my pajamas in the bedroom. I'll just tell them over the phone, here's what my economic plan is. Four million people will listen to it and watch it in real time, and then we'll go out and we'll drive the day. Hillary won't even be out of bed yet, and we'll be driving the news. Why would you waste all this time on a memo? If you came to me, I'm the best strategist that there is. So he had no problem telling me if my ideas were stupid. But also, too, I think you would also respect, you'd be surprised, actually would take a lot more input than you would think that Donald Trump does. If you could tell him how to be more effective on some of his strategies, if he kind of understood where he was going, he'll listen to you. And in fact, if you're in... In the room, hmm. he demands you have an opinion.
0: Yeah, I must admit, the time I've spent with him, very often, uh, people say, does he listen? Many, many times I've been there, he has listened, and, asked, and asks very perceptive and very good questions. Jason Miller, absolute pleasure to have you on Talking Pines. Getter, your new big project, you're, you're, so you're, you're basically taking on Twitter, aren't you?
3: We're taking on big tech. We're at 5 million users globally. The UK is our number three market. We've just brought on Russell Brand, is now on the platform. Yeah, it's big, it's big deal. Majid Nawaz, uh, Matt Letitia, uh, Andy No, a whole bunch of folks are here in the UK. We're growing, and it's pretty exciting. Good for you. Best of luck. Thank, thank, you, thank you. That was
0: Jason Miller on Talking Pines. A little bit of time left to do Barrage the Farage. Here we go. Anthony asks, who is the best Prime Minister Britain never had? No idea. Not me. And I could choose, you know, a name back from the past. I'm going to say Norman Tebbit, actually. Had it not been for the IRA bomb, I think Tebbit would have succeeded Thatcher and the reforming Conservative revolution would have continued. As it was, we got globalist Johnny Major, who would have signed us up to the euro, and goodness knows what else, had he had half a chance. Fraser asks, with widespread starvation, girls prevented from attending school, the Taliban in power, did Biden let down the NATO mission and the Afghan people? He let everyone down, didn't he, with that decision in Afghanistan. It was terrible. Um, And yet, at least tonight, Sleepy Joe is there in... Uh, in Brussels, at last. Finally, Alex asks, who would make a better president, Hillary Clinton or Melania Trump? Only one man here that could answer that. (laughs) Could Melania do it? Yeah, Melania's tough. Melania's tough. tough. She's tough. Well, there you are. Okay, guys, look, I'm done. I'm done for this week. I'm going to be back with you next week. I won't be here Monday, um, but I'll be back with you next Tuesday. It's my first day. First day I've missed this year so far, so I'm not doing bad. Please have a great weekend.